Oh, well, if you've been with us the last uh, few weeks here, and I'm sighing for a reason, yeah, you know we're in a series on God and government, and the relationship between the people of the kingdom of God and the governments of this world. And Kevin's asked me to speak again this weekend uh, while he's away, and I am happy to do it, though I have to confess, as these moments got closer to this morning's sermon, I started thinking back, and how exactly did this happen? How did he talk me into coming up here and, and speaking about this particular subject? I mean, I, the guy takes me out to Pancake House, and it's like he gets me in a, in a sort of a, a syrup-induced stupor, right? And I'm kind of just feeling it, and the next thing I know, here I am. <laughs> well, I'm glad you feel that way now. We've still got a sermon to get through, so um, we'll, we'll see. Uh, I did enjoy, I listened to Kevin's sermon from the 5th of August this past week, and I really did enjoy it. There were uh, many dimensions of that sermon that made me think much more critically about my views on God and government. And I often talk about this subject in some of my Bible classes at Bethel University, and some of what Kevin said really helped shape my thinking as we head towards the fall and classes start too. So I hope I can contribute a little bit to the conversation this morning, though it might be a bit controversial, because the subject we're going to look at this morning and the question that's driving this sermon is, I want to look specifically at the relationship between political ideology on the one hand and the kingdom of God on the other. And what I mean by that, and here's sort of the question, is, is there a political platform or ideology or a way of doing government that is more conducive to or more in alignment with the kingdom of God. If that doesn't make sense, I can say it uh, more clearly perhaps this way, that if Jesus were alive today, would he look at the Republican platform, ideology, candidate, consider himself a Republican, and vote that way, and even ask his followers to do the same because the Republican platform is most consistent with the kingdom of God? Or, by contrast, would he look at the Democratic platform and ideology and the, potential, and the candidate there and say, well, no, from what I can see, if you're going to be my follower, you should be a Democrat and vote Democratic. Would he pick another candidate and say supporting that candidate is part of proper discipleship? You can see already, I mean, this is a fairly polarizing question. And even as I was doing some of the research this past week, and one of the things that I did is I went on Google and just did some search engine uh, stuff with, with phrases like, Jesus was a Democrat, or Jesus was a Republican. It was fascinating, just the pages upon pages upon pages of stuff that came up and apologetics for the reasons why Jesus certainly would have been a Democrat if he were alive today. Or he certainly would have been a Republican if he was alive today. A few uh, stood out for me, two in particular. Um, the first one was from a song by the band Everclear that the song's title is Jesus Was a Democrat. So I'll read for you some of the lyrics as they are tearing apart in their song, The Republicans, and the platform. Jesus Christ didn't have blue eyes or blonde hair. He looked just like all those people that you Republicans want to kill. This is great. Go ahead, spin your hell into a heaven that you can sell. Make it look like California with a Bible belt. But Jesus didn't look like the boy next door. 
unless you live in Palestine. I wonder what you all mean by the golden rule. I think it's a scary play on words. I wonder what they taught you back in Sunday school. I bet you think of him as a nice, clean, long-haired Republican. Nah. He would have been locked up in Guantanamo Bay if he were alive today. He would have been a revolutionary wanted by the CIA. I picture him in all the wrong places, finding diamonds in the dirt, a star of David tattoo. Jesus Christ was a left-wing, radical Jew murdered by people like you. If Jesus was a Democrat, like the Bible says he was, I don't think he's going to want to take the blame for all the awful things you say and do in his name. So clearly, they would say that if Jesus were alive today, he would be a Democrat. (laughs) Okay, so then I looked and I did Jesus as a Republican, and one of the things that came up was a real respected theologian in our culture today, Wayne Grudem, who wrote a, a recent book that was released in February, and it's called Voting as a Christian. Okay? And I'll condense some of what he wrote here, but as he makes the case, he says, it's hard to see how many issues could have more importance than stopping the wrongful murder of more than one million innocent pre-born children every year, year after year after year. Other arguments about life, euthanasia, social justice, those arguments should not blind us to the plain fact that every vote for a Democratic candidate for president or for Congress, every vote for a Democratic candidate for president or Congress undeniably has the effect of continuing to protect one million abortions per year in the United States. Implication being, there is no chance whatsoever you could vote Democratic and still be considered a Christian. If Jesus were alive today, he would certainly be a Republican. See, now you know why I'm worried about the sermon, right? This isn't at all controversial. <laughs> I was, uh, my, two of my children are sitting up front here, Caleb and Anna, and I was sharing with them just a little bit about the sermon before I came up. <laughs> and Anna looked at me. She knows I have this huge uh, Braveheart sword that's in our bedroom that was given to me on the 40th birthday. And it's a true, like, real-life big sword. She's like, gee, Dad, you should have brought your sword this morning. <laughs> all right. Well, if that is an introduction, maybe we ought to pray as we begin, and then we'll dive in to this subject. God, I ask uh, by the power of your Spirit that you would make plain and true your kingdom truth to all of us, myself included, that we would be a people who can see with great clarity into the issues of our day and, and somehow be able to respond in the way that you would respond. Thank you for the setting and the scene to even talk about these things and wonder about them and and try to figure out what kingdom life looks like in the midst of all of this. We ask these things in your son's name and by the power of your spirit. Amen. All right, so in thinking critically about Jesus and whether or not he would have been a Democrat or a Republican, and I do think we need to think critically about this fact, I, I thought it might be helpful, at least as a starting place, to look back in history, to, to take ourselves out of, temporarily out of, I'll dive back in, but, but temporarily out of the American political scene and what's going on, especially over the next three months, and look back at, at how Jesus handled politics in his day. 
and how he handled the various ideologies and factions and political groups back then, hoping, at least my hope is, that as we see what he was doing back then, maybe then we can transfer some of that reality and some of the way in which he handled things into today's conversation. And in doing so, though, we have to do a little bit of work in understanding the day back then that the political scene is not so much like ours today, though there are parallels. But rather than two main groups among the Jews, there were four. So what I want to do is I want to talk about these four main political groups, their ideologies, and the context really is that these groups are all trying to respond in some way to interacting with the Roman government. Okay? And there's four different ways in which to interact with the Roman government and four different political groups. So what I want to do again is see how did Jesus respond to each of those four groups? And is there maybe one that he said, yeah, that's the one that we should be like if we're going to be uh, following me? Okay? And then from that, maybe we can come back in today's conversation. So the first group here, you may have heard of them. They are the Pharisees familiar party probably to many of us, and the way the Pharisees handled their interactions with the Roman government was primarily to separate themselves from the government, carve out space for themselves, but still live within the midst of the culture, and in doing so, trying to create a different way of life in the midst of the culture, but separating themselves from all civil matters. The, the term Pharisee itself literally means, from the Hebrew language, to separate. So that's what they wanted to do. And the reason for their rise among the Jews was primarily related to uh, the time in which the Jews came out of Babylonian captivity. So you remember the stories of Daniel and they're in captivity, and uh, they're released ultimately to come back into the promised land. And when they were released to come back into the promised land, the Pharisees really rose in power. And the reason why they did is because they said, you know, we ended up in captivity because we were intermingling all the time with the governments and the other religions and the people of the day. We need to stop that. We need to separate ourselves from the government and create a different way of life. So they committed themselves to the Torah and they committed themselves to a bunch of different laws and principles and tried to govern the people in that way. So that would be response number one. The Pharisees tried to separate but still live within. They would have been scandalized in such a context, though, to eat at the table with, the, with Roman tax collectors and sinners as they saw them. But they wanted to separate but live amongst. So would Jesus say, that's the way to do this? The Pharisees had it right. Now, the second group out of these different factions, you probably have heard of them as well, are the Sadducees. And the Sadducees came from the priestly tribes of Israel, the Levite tribe in particular, and they were the ones who were in charge of running the temple, of performing the sacrifices, of leading the people in the festivals and the rhythms of the Jewish culture. And their response to the government was the exact opposite of the Pharisees, they said, we've got to get involved in the government, work with the government, convince the government to allow us to continue our practice as Jewish people so that we don't put our temple practices and our sacrifices and, and rituals and rhythms in jeopardy. We need to work with them. There's a pragmatic reason for it, too. The Romans were the ones who determined who was the high priest of that day. 
And so there was even a, a little bit of a corrupt relationship between them where the Sadducees would pay the Roman government money in order to get appointed the high priest that they wanted. And even they were the ones who were in charge of the money changers in the temple. You know the story there. The reason why they had to have money changers is because Jews would come in to the temple with Roman currency that had an image, and we'll talk about this more in just a minute, it had an image of Caesar on it as God. And with that image as God, it was a blasphemous to bring it into the temple. So they had to change in their money for special temple currency that only the, the, the Sadducees could give. And it was sort of extorted. The exchange rates were, were much worse uh, than just would be a normal society. But they cooperated with them nonetheless. They sat at tables with sinners. And, and we see Jesus doing the same thing, right? So this is response number two. Would Jesus back then say, you know what? Cooperating with the government is the right way to do it. Now, the third response, and I like these guys, they, they kind of crack me up. They're the Essenes. And these guys took a look around, packed up their bags, and said, we're out of here. <laughs> That's it. And they were sort of like the, the, the monks of... Uh, our day back then, and they did. They just actually exited Jerusalem in mass, and they holed up in a bunch of caves uh, called the Qumran Caves outside of the Dead Sea. And what they did is they committed themselves to just daily rituals and rhythms of prayer, of studying the Torah, of celibacy and poverty, and just this whole monastic life. And they said, we want nothing at all to do with all the corruption and, and all uh, of the sinfulness that's going on in, in society. We're out of here. So we, we do have the, the famous Dead Sea Scrolls today because of the Essenes. When the Roman government came to, and they started killing all the Jews right around 60 and 70 AD, it was the Essenes who sort of frantically put all of these sacred scrolls and texts into, into little cylinders and hid them deep in the caves of Qumran. And they sat there unnoticed for the next roughly 1900 years until, as the story goes, a young Bedouin tribal boy was walking around the Dead Sea in the caves of Qumran, and he was picking up stones and throwing them into the caves. And as he threw the stones into the caves, they would go, you know, Phew. I don't know what sound they would make, but stove, you know, stones hitting a cave floor. And apparently one of the stones, instead of going, went clink. And uh, he sent his uncle up there, and they discovered all these cylinders that had the Dead Sea Scrolls in them. And they're the direct result of the work of the Essenes preserving scripture uh, in that society. So is that our response? Should we just, you know, all head out to Hutchinson or something? I don't know. Where, where's a good place to go away from society? I don't have any, any idea. Dick, can you help me out? Where should we go, Dick? South, where should we go? Where? May, Maythro. Lanesboro. Where's Lanesboro? I mean, see, that's just it, right? I mean, you could really hide there if, a, you know, a knucklehead like me doesn't even know where it is. All right. Dick, I do want to see a series of slides about uh, work, and not just in Mongolia, but in Lanesboro, if you could, all right? So um, when I come back. All right. The fourth response, then, uh, was the response of the zealots, okay? And the zealots, their response to the Romans was basically just kill them all, okay? Let's get rid of these guys. They were both civil and militarily disobedient. They refused to speak anything other than Hebrew, 
They did not pay taxes. They killed government authorities, and they tried to drive the Romans out of society altogether so that they could go back on the throne. Judas Iscariot was likely a zealot. And as the thinking goes, the reason why he betrayed Jesus when he did is that he knew Jesus was coming down into the city and that he, in Judas's mind, maybe, and this is some of the theory, that he knew the confrontation was uh, potentially coming, but he wasn't sure. So he wanted to come and speed up that process and show the Roman government where Jesus was just to set up the showdown between Rome and Jesus so that this could be decided once and for all. And when it became clear that Jesus was not going to do that, he threw his 30 pieces of silver away and ran down and hung himself. That's some of the theory around being a zealot. In the 70s AD, the zealots camped themselves on a gigantic rock, Masada, outside of the Dead Sea. They holed up there to try to fight the Romans as they were killing off the Jews. And when the Romans breached the walls of Masada, they found an empty camp there because they had, they had committed mass suicide before they could be taken into Roman authority. So those are the four ideologies of the day. You have the Pharisees who wanted to separate but stay within. You had the Sadducees who wanted to work with the government and maybe risk a bit of corruption. You had the Essenes that said, we're out of here. And you had the zealots that said that all governments must be resisted. So in answering the question, which one did Jesus endorse, which one was most consistent with his kingdom and, and most in alignment with what Jesus was about, the very curious and to me quite interesting answer is that Jesus actually didn't endorse any of them. He didn't say yes to a single one of them. And in fact, when you look at his life and his history and the people who followed him during his life, before his ministry, after he headed back into the heavens, that what he did do is that people from all parties followed him. He called people from every one of these factions, Pharisees and Sadducees, Essenes and Zealots. He, he, he called them all out and said, here's the thing. Let me teach you my kingdom. And so we have Matthew, the tax collector, part of the Sadducee group following Jesus. We have John the Baptist, the Essene, rumbling out of the wilderness, and he's eating you know, locusts and wild honey and wearing clothes, and he like shows up in society again. It's like, prepare for the kingdom. And you have Nicodemus being invited in. You have Paul, the Pharisee, being one of the greatest emissaries of Christianity. And you have Simon, the zealot. He didn't endorse nor did he reject any political ideology among his followers. Christian theologian Paul Metzger of Trinity Evangelical School writes this. You don't find Jesus going in with this or that political party or interest group in his day. In fact, he likely frustrated the Essenes and the Zealots and the other groups since one could not get his endorsement and support. He even had a former tax collector trader named Matthew and a zealot named Simon as part of his inner core of, or cabinet of disciples. No doubt Jesus had to sleep between them every night just so that the zealot wouldn't slit the throat of the tax collector. Jesus' ministry was not geared towards political activism of this or of that particular stripe. He's concerned with the kingdom as manifested in his person and work. 
Now, one cannot take from his practice and mission that he would be against being involved in politics or in our democratic system today. Of course not. In every case, in whatever system, Jesus wants his people to be salt and light in various ways. That being said, he would certainly be against confusing his kingdom vocation with the ambitions of this or of that political system. You know, it's interesting to note, and when you really read through his teachings and his life and ministry, that Jesus rarely, if ever, talked about politics. And as I say that, maybe there's one passage in Scripture that comes into your mind where you think, oh, there was that one, Peter. You remember that one where they showed him that Roman coin? And he says, to render unto Caesar that which is Caesar, and to render unto God that which is God, a familiar passage there on that. That seems to be the one we tend to think of and say, see, we should pay our taxes, um, but we're part of something different. I debated on this because I don't know how much time we have in the sermon, and there's a lot of teaching around this, but I think it's helpful to even spend a couple minutes parsing out that passage and to recognize what's at play there. Because that passage, when you really start digging into it, doesn't have anything to do with paying your taxes. That's not what Jesus is trying to communicate in this passage. Okay, what's going on when you look at, uh, at the situation and who's involved is that, first of all, the passage starts out with the Pharisees, as usual, trying to trap Jesus. So they come to him with this question. And they hold up this coin and they say, should we pay this tribute to Caesar? And as always, because it's the Pharisees, it's not an honest question. They're just wanting to somehow reduce Jesus' power. And the way that might happen with this passage is in saying, uh, they were hoping that if Jesus says, yes, pay it to Caesar, that the Jews would start hating him. And if he said, no, don't pay it to Caesar, then they would turn him into the Roman government. So they've got him in a pretty sweet trap here. But Jesus, as usual, is pretty masterful about the whole thing. And there's a little section in here that's key to understanding the passage that, quite frankly, for many years of my life, I'd glossed over. I'd never really even seen it. But Jesus, in his masterful way, instead of answering their question, he holds up the coin and he starts by asking a counter question. And he says to them, whose image and inscription is on this coin? And that really is the key. What Jesus is doing in this moment is the key to understanding the passage. Because if you were a Jew or if you were a Pharisee standing there listening to Jesus's question, whose image or inscription is upon this coin, those two words, image and inscription, would have called into the front of your mind some very important things uh, for being a Jew. First of all, the word image would have given you an association with what? The first two commandments. Love the Lord your God only and don't make any graven images of him. Okay, so that would have been the first thing. The second thing, this word inscription that Jesus uses is a word that would have been associated with the most famous of Jewish hymn songs known as the Shema. It was a song that the Jews regularly sang and the song went, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. And love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. In fact, inscribe it on your doorposts so that as you leave and as you come back, your mind and your heart is governed by the fact that there is simply one God. So Jesus asks, whose image and inscription is this? And they say, well, it's Caesar. And that's important to note, too, because the image on it was actually Octavius Caesar, who, when he rose to power, 
what he did with his father, Julius Caesar, is he said, hey, you know what? <laughs> My dad was actually a god. Okay? <laughs> I don't know how you can you know, pronounce those sorts of things. Caleb, would you like to give it a shot right now? Really? No, okay, it's good. Um, so, so he did. He said, you know, uh, my, my father was a god. That makes me the son of God. Well, now this whole scene is getting pretty interesting, right? Because now you have the son of God standing there holding the coin of the one who has been declared by the Romans to be the son of God. Now you have competing gods. Jesus says, whose image and inscription is on this coin? And they say, well, it's Caesar. And in their mind, Caesar is being associated as this claim to God. They can't even use his currency in the temple. And so Jesus says, well, here's the deal. I'm going to leave it to you to decide who you think is God. This is not about paying taxes. If you think Caesar is God, then render everything you have to him. But if you think God is God, render everything you have to him. And then the text you know, ends with the Pharisees walk away amazed and they're kind of sheepish. They're not going to ask any more questions because Jesus has completely reframed the debate. It doesn't have anything to do with paying taxes. It has everything to do with choose this day who you will serve. The Pharisees can't even go back to the Roman government and say Jesus is being subversive because they, they themselves would be being subversive by saying, yeah, we can't follow Caesar Augustus, okay? So it's interesting there that even the, the, the um, passage that we tend to think about related to Jesus in politics, he wasn't actually speaking in political terms in that passage. So why is that? Why was it that Jesus so rarely, if ever, talked about politics? Why did he not involve himself? Why did he pull people from all these different factions into uh, his discipleship? And that was the question I really wrestled with then this last week, because I thought if, if I could nail that somehow, maybe that could help me understand this, the, the, this day and age where we're wondering about Republicans and Democrats. And the answer to the question for me anyway, at least what I'm wrestling with and what I would submit for you this morning, came from Daniel chapter 2 where we see something at play here between competing kingdoms in this world. In the Daniel chapter 2, I don't know if you know the story, but King Nebuchadnezzar has had this frightful dream. And he calls Daniel to interpret the dream. And he talks about, Nebuchadnezzar does, that in my dream I saw this statue with this head of gold and this body of silver, a chest of silver, a belly of bronze and legs of bronze and, and feet of iron. And as I looked at this statue, suddenly this rock appeared and just blew it to bits. And it was a rock not made by human hands. What was going on here, Daniel? And Daniel explains the dream to him. And looking back, biblical scholars, as they comment on this, they, they look at how the different metals of this statue were different kingdoms in Daniel's age and then kingdoms to come. So even in the story, Daniel says, you, Nebuchadnezzar, and the Babylonian kingdom were the head of gold. But a kingdom will follow that will upend you, and that will be the chest of silver. Another kingdom after that would be the belly of bronze, and another kingdom would be the feet and the legs of iron. And in that time, then, the, the rock will come. And so scholars have looked back and said, well, the Persians followed the Babylonian kingdom, so maybe they were the chest of silver. And the Greeks rose up after that and dethroned the Persians. Maybe they were the belly of bronze. And finally, the Romans were after that, and maybe they were the feet of iron. And then this eternal rock appears, and it says, During the time of all those kings, this is in Daniel, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. 
nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. So the point of this dream in Daniel is that amongst and amidst the kingdoms of this world, there is an eternal kingdom that stands. I wonder if Jesus didn't recognize that fact. Because that's all he talked about, was his kingdom. I wonder if he knew that all these kingdoms would rise and would fall. And so rather than affirming one given response, he pulled them all out and said, let me teach you about my kingdom. Because he knew that someday the Roman government would fall. In all of these responses and all of these ways of being involved in the government that people were giving their lives to would one day be rendered irrelevant because the Roman government would no longer exist. There would be no need for Pharisees and Sadducees and Essenes and Zealots because there is no context for them to react and respond to the government. So why affirm that? All we do now is, as people 2,000 years later, we look back in the history books and we study them. But the groups themselves are gone. Temporary. Passing. Not any one of them, the ideology of the kingdom of God. Probably have dimensions of the kingdom within them, but none of them the kingdom themselves. So Jesus pulled them all out and said, let me teach you my way of life. So then the question becomes, what can we learn from this? Some of you, the answer might be becoming somewhat clear about where I'm headed with this. And it seems to me that among the things that relate to us today is to recognize, and I I really hope this doesn't sound controversial, that I don't need my sword in this moment, but to recognize that one day the United States of America will cease to exist. I don't know when that will be, and I don't know whether that will be when God begins to wind down history to its end and sets up in its permanence his eternal kingdom, or whether factors will conspire in the decades and centuries uh, ahead that the boundary lines that we currently understand in this world that are called the United States of America, whether or not those will shift and change. When I even look back into my social studies textbooks from when I was a kid, so many of the maps of the world have changed. I don't even recognize the countries anymore. No kingdom is forever. Rome and Babylon, these kingdoms were far more influential in their world than the United States is today, and they no longer exist. And in saying that, it doesn't mean I don't love or respect our country. I hope you don't hear that in these words. Our country is great on many levels. It's been an amazing country of which to have been a part in this time in history. And I love the opportunity provided here. But there is the undeniable fact that one day, one way or another, the United States of America will cease to exist. And if that's the case, any current political ideology, Republican or Democrat, will then too be rendered irrelevant. They will be parties like Sadducees and Pharisees, Essenes and Zealots, that will be footnotes in history to be studied by people who've come later. Theologian Paul Hybert writes this about the idea of our identity and our sense of self because so often I think we get into this notion that our very identity or essence is that of I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat. Well, what if those labels were temporary and transitory 
meaningful for their context, but not the deepest, not the core of who we are. He writes this, During this time when the kingdom of God has come, but not in its fullness, Christians continue to live in two worlds, the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God. The former is temporary, the latter is eternal. The identities of Christians in this world are then all relative. All other identities other than one are relative because they're passing away. The Christian's new identity as a member of the family of Christ is eternal. And it takes precedence over all earthly identities. So if Jesus came today, I don't know this for sure, but I wonder if he wouldn't do the same thing that he did 2,000 years ago. And say, yes, be active in the government, be involved in the kingdoms of this world. But let me pull from over here, from this group here, let me pull from over here, and let me teach you something far more important. Let me teach you about the kingdom. Let me teach you about what I'm about here, so that as you go back and participate in the governments of this world, you are doing the, the government in the way and through the lens that the kingdom teaches. It doesn't mean we shouldn't argue for a political ideology. It doesn't mean we shouldn't take seriously running a country. It doesn't mean there won't be substantial differences of opinion about how to do it best or whether there are degrees of right or wrong. But what it does mean, and the title of the sermon is actually Essential Law, that as we do all of that, if we've learned well in the kingdom, if we have taken the words of Jesus seriously, if we are truly his disciple, meaning to see the world the way that he sees it and to act the way that it is, there is one essential law in his kingdom. And I think you know what that is. This is the law of love. You know, in Hebrew culture, when you labeled someone, it was your way of, of seeking to exert control over them. If you named someone, it was your way of, of indicating that you had power over them. And, and so we label one another so much, Right? We throw, you're a Democrat, so that means this, 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 and this about you. And no longer do we see that person, because what's truest about that person is not the transitory, temporary, fading away label. We say Democrat. What's truest about that person is they're a child of the king. And the image of God rests on them. That's what's going to last for the end. And when we say you're a Republican, that means this and that and this. And we put them in a little box and we kind of chuck them aside and, and, and maybe disregard what's there. And what's truest about that person, what's truest about that person is they're a child of the king. And the image of God rests on them. So I wonder if Jesus wouldn't pull us out from these different ideologies and factions and say, let me teach you the essential law that matters. Disagree, you're going to disagree. You're going to have to sort it out. But as you sort it out, let me teach you the law that matters. It is my law. It is the law of love. Every commandment of the law and the prophets hangs on this. And if you guide yourself that way, I promise you, you will see each other differently. And you will see that the image of God rests on one another. And if you see that clearly, you can't help but not spew the venomous hate of CNN or MSNBC upon one another, if you're seeing each other rightly. C.S. Lewis writes this. It's one of my favorite, uh, favorite things that he's written in terms of seeing this world clearly and the people in this world. He says this about the people that are following Jesus. It's from his text, The Weight of Glory. You know, it may be possible for each of us to think too much of our own potential glory. 
but it's hardly possible for each of us to think too often or too deeply about the glory of our neighbor. The load or the weight or the burden of my neighbor's glory, and I would add whether Republican or Democrat, should be laid daily on my back. A load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of any that are proud will be broken. You need to understand it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, Lewis writes. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day, when they are glorified, be a creature which if you saw them now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as if you now met them, it would only be at all in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. So it's in light of these overwhelming possibilities that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations and cultures, arts and civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with. It's immortals whom we work with. That we marry, snub, and exploit. And next to the blessed sacrament of communion itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. As we head into our season here of clearly the noise is going to get much louder. <laughs> over the next two and a half months as we head towards the election. And I have my political thoughts and stances and ideologies and, and all of those things. And as I wrestle with that and as I wonder about those sorts of things and as I try to come to grips with what's kingdom here and what's not and how would Jesus see, the starting point, uh, hopefully increasingly for me in my own journey of transition and change and hopefully into greater Christ-likeness, the starting point for me is to look at the people around me and recognize that the image is on them and start there. If I can categorize you in some way, then I can hate you. <laughs> but if I can see the image resting upon you, it begins to take your breath away. And at the end of the day, when all countries and all civilizations and all governments and all political factions have said their case, they'll fade away. And there will be a rock that stands in the middle, not made by human hands, but of the eternal kingdom of God. For the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, on them the light has shined. For unto us a child has been born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And he will reign over his kingdom with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Whatever your stripe, whatever your bent, whatever your political hue, my encouragement for you as we head into these two months to maybe sound a little different than that which we're going to hear and see every single day. 
Argue for your ideology. Argue that it's right and good. But at the end of the day, I encourage you to see the image on one another. And with humility, carry one another. Instead of with pride, saying you're wrong and fighting all the time. Maybe, maybe we would sound a little different as the people of God interacting with the kingdoms of this world.